Reese is the owner of Trauma Therapy of Nashville and also the co-founder and executive director of Integrative Therapy of Nashville, a collective of independent mental health practitioners who work from a holistic, whole-person approach. I met Melanie through doing work with our respective therapy dogs. Let's start with, what is your definition of trauma? Trauma, in short, it means wound. So anything that we've experienced that has a lasting impact, whether that be emotional, physical, and I always say our brain and our body are interchangeable words whenever I talk with clients. What are different types of trauma people can experience? We typically divide them into three main types, which is acute, chronic, and complex. So an acute trauma is going to be normally like a one-time event. That can be if we have an assault or an accident or a natural disaster. Then our chronic trauma can be developmental trauma, uh, medical trauma, exposure to poverty, discrimination. So it's those long-lasting and ongoing things that we experience. Coping with a chronic illness that's just ongoing, that creates a trauma for us. Repeated domestic violence abuse, those types of things. And I like to include in there intergenerational trauma, which is trauma that's passed down from generations. And then complex trauma, that describes when we have multiple trauma events, they're often invasive, interpersonal, they can be very wide ranging, but they have a long-term impact on us in that way. Whereas a simple trauma can be just that one traumatic event. This one is more defined as something that's ongoing. I want to talk about developmental trauma for a minute. Mm -hmm. What is it? We typically think of trauma like those big events, but the developmental trauma, often they'll start more in childhood. When I try to explain it to a client, we may have had one thing happen when we were younger. So let's use the growing up in a household where we don't get connection with our parents, or it might be we're witnessing like abuse. If it happened one time, depending on like our resilient factors that we have going on for one person, that may not have a lasting impact because they saw dad hit mom. But if it happens over and over again, we start learning that's a normal environment. And so while we get into a relationship when we get older and we experience that with a partner, we know it doesn't feel good, but our programming, it doesn't throw that big of a red flag. We're more likely to kind of give those a little bit of a break because that's been a developmental thing that's created for us. I always talk about messaging that gets put in place. So whether I'm not good enough. Like when we witness those things, these messages and core beliefs start getting attached and we start filtering, you know, our world and our thoughts and our interactions through that. So then when the next thing happens that feels remotely similar, it strengthens that I'm not good enough or I'm only good when I'm useful to other people. I always say our family contacts when we're younger is how we're learning when we go out and get into other relationships, our siblings, our first experiences of what friends might be like. Our parents and with what we see in their relationship, it's our first example of what relationships are supposed to be like. So you can imagine there's so many different messaging that someone's going to have by the time they launch into the world and start trying to have relationships themselves. And it's almost like that consistent messaging leads to us as adults collecting evidence in life. Yeah, we have these messages and beliefs that we were filtering everything through. When working with clients, I'll say, what filter was that? Because it may not be what was meant to come at us when someone makes a comment. But when we're living and filtering through, I'm not good enough. That's going to put a little bit of that on the message that we hear. 
And so I have clients say, I take everything so personal and I don't know why. And what I hear is I have so many core beliefs that tell me something's wrong with me. So the more work we can do to try to start working and changing or clearing those beliefs and changing it into something a little better, then when that message comes at us, it doesn't match up with what we believe anymore. Because everybody has those same messages. Everyone has a past that's created that, whether negative or positive. But we're able to see, oh, they've had, you know, this experience that might be where it's coming from. Like it allows the opportunity for our brain to give another option. Besides that has to mean that I'm not good enough. And from personal experience too, it's amazing to me how much shame and guilt we attach to that filter Mm -hmm. and how quickly that affects us mentally and also emotionally. Oh yeah, it happens so quickly because we're living off of those like they're the truth. Mm -hmm. But normally we can prove them wrong. We can point to something where that's not the case. And just knowing that there's another way of feeling. And you were talking about generational trauma, Mm -hmm. where for me and my journey, I'm carrying so many things, emotional baggage that isn't even mine. Yes. Generational trauma, we're typically, you know, when you hear like family of origin and things like that, it'll normally go back to, you Mm -hmm. think, your parents, maybe your grandparents. And that means it got passed from your mom to you. So that's generational. Mm -hmm. Like it goes from one generation to the next versus intergenerational trauma is more fluid across generations and it can go back epigenetics says three years and the most interesting thing that came out of this was so when a woman is born we have all the eggs that we'll ever need so when your grandmother had your mother the egg that eventually became you was incubated by your grandmother and it so much goes into like they say for men they start creating sperm from birth And so like their nutrition heavily plays into those kinds of things. And so it's epigenetics meaning it's laying these things over. So mom, what does her trauma look like? What does grandmother's trauma look like? All of that gets woven in to how we are made. And so I hear commonly like people have experiences and things that they're like, I I can't really point to it. But then when we start digging in and looking at what our past family members have experienced, it starts to make a lot more sense. I love that because this is not something that I'm personally familiar with. So I know there's other people that don't look at the science behind it. I mean, I've been a therapist for a while now, but I'm always doing some sort of training and reading and just constantly talking about this stuff. But the more I've learned and the longer I've done this, people, you know, sometimes think of going to therapy as being like, woo woo. Uh (laughs) But it's so scientific. The amount of stuff that we think is out of our control or that we should have control over, I guess because you hear a lot of shoulds. I should be able to handle this. It's been long enough. I should be over this by now. Why did this feel so big to me? It's not really something we can just say, I'm going to control that and it be controlled. There's just so much that goes into it. And when you're doing therapy with someone, at least the type of work that I do, I see a person as a whole. Mm -hmm. You can't just look at okay, they're depressed. How do I help them not feel depressed? I'm looking at their whole history that got them sitting in front of me. I'm looking at their nervous system. I'm looking at what are their coping skills already, but you're constantly looking just at patterns, like patterns in the nervous system, in the brain, in the way that we operate. And so there's some really scientific things that are going on that unfortunately get brushed off because people carry those misconceptions and just personal beliefs about how they should be experiencing the world. What inspired you to become a therapist and specifically a trauma therapist? Ah, This is always a fun question. 
My parents got divorced and it was a difficult process for me to go through as most people. But I was like, I'm going to become a therapist and I'm going to save all the marriages and I'm going to help all the kids that had to experience it. I don't work with couples or kids. I have therapists in my practice to do. But once I started like practicing and getting into things, I was known for always getting like these big trauma cases. And I was like, these are fascinating. <laughs> and some stuff that might scare someone. I've always just been like, I'd be honest with my clients. If something comes up I haven't dealt with, I was like, you know, I don't know. I haven't worked with that yet. But I can refer you to someone that is really awesome and has all the training in it. Or I can consult with people and read a bunch of books and we can figure figure it out. And everyone always wants to figure it out with me, which I very much appreciate and feel honored that they give me those opportunities. But whenever I was an intern, I started seeing all these different trauma cases. And so EMDR was like, it's the most popular kind of brain-based therapy out there that we hear about. And I went and got trained in EMDR. And so I started using that with all kinds of stuff that was coming into my office. I was like, this is amazing. This is really neat because I would say one of the favorite parts of my job is being able to tell someone who has just lived life with all these experiences that it doesn't have to be like that anymore. There is something different that we can try to do. And when you start to see that, you know, people always ask therapists, I don't know how you do what you do, how you just sit in people's stuff all day. Granted, it's difficult, but it's so rewarding because you get to see their process. And when you see things start clicking for them and they really realize, wow, things can be different. But I started seeing those, you know, those kind of clients as an intern and just the interest took off from there. So then I started seeing clients fiddling with things all the time, whether it was playing with the rug, with their foot, playing with the pillows. I used to have this funny little thing to play with with your hands and that was going nonstop. Playing with their fingernails or their hair. I was like, there's some kind of like energy, anxious stuff going on that we're not paying attention to. It needs attention because mm -hmm. I keep seeing it. And I have a love of dogs and I know the relationship I have with my dogs were wonderful. And so I got interested in animal therapy. That's how we met. Mm -hmm. So I brought my dog in to see what would happen and they started petting the dog. It very clearly became, this is a third thing with energy in the room with us. And such a help I've seen where clients trying to tell me their story and just have to stop because they felt really overwhelmed. And then they'll ask Riley, my therapy dog, to get up on the couch with them and they can keep going. It automatically like lowers levels of anxiety and things like that when we are able to like pet an animal. So I've seen, you know, clients in so many different ways, but I would say that when they come into the office, they're like, where's the dogs? Like they look for them. And I've seen, I have two therapy dogs and different clients connect with them and they connect with different ones. And so you can see, I know with one client, my golden retriever is always going to be up there with them. <laughs> <laughs> and some of them, you know, other clients, it's my German Shepherd. And it's just neat to watch the relationship. They interact with clients in the way they don't with me. It's very different and it's really beautiful to watch it the confidence that it gives when they get to see a therapy animal you know I kind of introduce them when I first start working with the client and I'll say this is Riley or Darcy and you can invite them up on the couch with you they may lay at your feet you can ask them to move but they really get to choose and so if they want to get down they can if they want to lay you know on their dog bed they can and when they see that an animal gets to make those choices for themselves 
a lot of times clients have not been doing that and that hits home with them. It helps build confidence, whether it's um, helping them like teach a skill to the dog or, you know, we've gone walking with dogs before and like, you know, they're trained, they're going to walk right with us. They're not going to pull and they feel in control because it's a trust thing that starts getting built. So there's just all sorts of ways that the animals get to kind of come in and they're like little therapists Mm -hmm. themselves. (laughs) And especially dogs, I find, because I have two therapy dogs as well, mm-hmm. how intuitive they are for what the person needs. Oh, yeah. They definitely recognize like when I have a client that's not a dog person, they don't really try to be too involved. Mm-hmm. But other ones, they could be, it appears to be that they're like sleeping. And then if a client gets really activated and having a hard time, they'll get up and go over to them and like put a paw on them or Riley leans against legs and things like that. And when we have a pattern, like if someone, a client is upset or activated and maybe crying and one of the dogs comes over, puts their head underneath their hand or tries to, you know, give them a kiss and they laugh, they just got a new body pattern, a new memory. So laughing while they were feeling something really hard, that creates some new body patterns and messaging. I love that when that happens, it just lights me up. That's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) My little one, Monty, whenever I get upset about something, frustrated, he immediately runs to me and it's almost like a check-in, like, are you okay, mom? Yeah, they're wonderful like that. Riley, the German Shepherd, she's trained and you can tell like she knows it's her job and she does it very proudly. It's so cute. (laughs) Darcy, the Golden, she's just goofy and just loves to love on people. (laughs) That's how her style of therapy does. But they both just pick up and they seem to know when people need it and when they don't. Which is so incredible. Yeah. You touched on this a little bit earlier. What is your philosophy on healing from trauma? It definitely is something that is continuing to evolve. You see a whole picture. I always say there's all these puzzle pieces, but you start to look at, you have to look at the person as a whole. With brain spotting, David Grin, he'll say what happens in the body happens in the brain and what happens in the brain happens in the body. And so just like when you touch the back of your hand, we feel that in our brain. With every thought we have, we have a physiological response. Emotions are felt in our body. That's why when we get anxious, maybe our stomach hurts or our chest gets tight. We have tears or a physical sign that we're feeling emotions, whether they're happy, sad, scared, all these things across the board. Our body is continually responding to things. And so I like the example of when we've been in a near accident. You're like, I think I just had a small heart attack. And you have to give yourself a minute to like calm down. But your body does not know that you didn't actually have the accident. You have to like let it know it, if that makes sense. You have to move through those feelings because that's how much our body is experiencing everything. It's not just our brain and the thoughts we're having. When we experience trauma, you see very commonly we try to separate our brain from our body, our emotions through distracting or all different kinds of things. But I view my job as a therapist is I'm just there to create the space for someone's body to recognize and heal itself. And it's done through several different ways. When I'm doing trauma work, I would say my philosophy is how well is the brain and body connected? What's there that we need to release and let go of? This connection between mind and body is so fascinating to me (laughs) because until I started seeking healing for my own trauma last Mm -hmm. year, I had only ever associated the mind's response to trauma, not the body. Yeah, it's all one thing. And I just remember the question that kept coming up, where do you feel that in your body? (laughs) 
I'll be honest, like the first few times, I'm like, I don't feel anything. I just had no awareness of it, you know? And then you start to tap into that awareness and then Mm -hmm. you start feeling, that's why my stomach's upset. That's why my palms are sweaty. Mm -hmm. It's so fascinating to me. Our unprocessed trauma, like those memories, they get filed away in our midbrain to where we don't really have access to them, but they're stored in very fragmented ways. We experience life in our senses, and so they get stored in those ways too. But in the nervous system, early evidence shows like our cellular memory shows that it's not just our brain, but it's our body cells that can hold on to these events and these experiences our survival responses in the fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And Mm -hmm. so when your body can't activate and complete the responses, those things become trapped in our nervous system. They've shown like parts of our structural changes. Our amygdala, it gets larger. That's our alarm center of the brain. Our hippocampus, it gets smaller. It's critical to remembering like the story of what happened in a traumatic experience. So our functional changes really alter different activity in certain areas of the brain. So it's just really important to get an idea of like what's going on in order to be able to process. So unresolved emotions literally get trapped in our body. They drain our energy. They lead to burnout. We have emotional imbalances and then disease. When we chronically like repress our emotions, I say the worst thing we can do is shut our emotions down because we're creating toxicity in our body and in our brain. You might see some therapies where they're doing the trauma-informed yoga and things like that, but there are therapists that specialize in pelvic health. That is a huge area where we hold a lot of unconscious tension, like old emotions and deep, vulnerable stuff that we've experienced, but it's not recognized a lot of times. And like, I've even noticed myself, like I will keep my stomach just as constantly like flexed, like held in and we don't realize it. And so working with someone that can help work with our may hear the term lower pelvic floor area are just those hips. And we have different areas of the body that do that kind of stuff, but our hips can be a really big place where we hold it. I actually did not know that. The adverse childhood experiences research that Kaiser Permanente did, they marked kind of these 10 different major trauma events that we may experience before we're 18. Some of those are like, were we abused? Did we witness violence? these prolonged exposures to things, the higher number it is, like if we have four or more before we're 18, then that increases the likelihood of chronic illness, chronic pain, rates of suicide, heart disease, liver disease, all these things. Because one of the specialties of mine is chronic pain and illness. And when you see someone coming in with all these physical symptoms, I'm like, their body is screaming at them to let go of this stuff, to like work through. And when I say let go, for the body to be able to release it, not just get over it and move on. It's saying, hey, I need attention. Pay attention. This is something. But we take medications and things like that. And I'm not dissing medications. It's definitely needed for things. But I'll use the example with my German Shepherd has hip dysplasia. If I gave her too much pain medication, she wouldn't feel any pain, but she wouldn't know how much she could use her hips without hurting them. Because if you completely numb out, we don't know what range of things we can tolerate, what's doing damage, what's not. Sometimes we can get over-medicated on things or we can jump straight to that, hoping to relieve the symptoms. And we, we kind of miss some things that we need to look at. It's almost like medication sometimes can be just a Band-Aid. The root of the problem is the body and the mind work that you're doing. 
Absolutely. And there's times where it's really helpful when we're trying to process and look at this stuff because we may have such strong patterns that our brain just was like, nope, you can't go look at that or we're going to start panicking. Mm -hmm. And so that's why taking some of these medications can help get the nervous system, turn it down just a little bit Mm -hmm. so that we can kind of hang with this stuff that we're looking at and it's not too much for us at the time. So we can actually look at it without trying to shut down in our natural way we may have been doing it before. So it definitely can be helpful. Yeah, makes it more manageable. Yes, absolutely. But like you said, if it's the only thing we're looking to, it's kind of like putting a Band-Aid over like a wound from surgery. It's not going to do too much for us when you're looking at long term. You were talking about EMDR and brain spotting earlier. Can you talk about the difference between the two and why each can be effective for processing trauma? Yeah, I did EMDR for a very, very long time before I was introduced to brain spotting. And brain spotting was actually created from EMDR. David Grand was doing a process called natural flow EMDR. EMDR typically is the bilateral stimulation of the brain. So you're a lot of times you're using your eye movement. It's going back and forth kind of rapidly. And he started doing it more slow back and forth. When he was working with someone he'd been working with quite a while, noticed when he stopped on the spot, there was like an eye flutter and a lot of trauma started like kind of coming through and releasing when he stayed on the one spot. That's how brain spotting was created. They both are working in the brain to try to release the trauma. They're just kind of going at it at a different angle. EMDR is going to be a little bit more structured. It's an eight-phase process that we kind of work through that's going to resolve specific event type traumas. Brain spotting, we are naturally kind of brain spotting. If you've ever been in a conversation with someone and they're continually looking to one place when they talk, keep checking back at this one place, they're accessing that information in the brain. And so it feels very natural to me being a brain spotting therapist. I I loved EMDR and think it does really great and it can be helpful. And I pull in aspects. I kind of got into a place where I combine a little bit of both depending on what I'm doing and working with. Brain spotting normally finds one spot that you stay fixed on to access those files in the deeper brain that we're not, we don't have conscious awareness of. But Mm -hmm. there's those fragmented stored trauma memories. Brain spotting has more of a constant, where do you, like you said earlier, how do I feel and where might my body be feeling it? A big thing in the brain spotting is called dual attunement. It's a process where a therapist is like simultaneously attuning to the client in the therapeutic relationship as well as the brain body response. There's a lot of evidence that brain spotting kind of works primarily in our limbic system. That heavily plays a role in our emotion, our long-term memory, motivation, impulse, those kind of things. We kind of connect into that. So it's that constant attunement is a really big part of the brain spotting. I can attest to the incredible power of brain spotting because I've experienced it myself. Yeah. You go into it and I don't even know what I'm processing, but I feel so much better afterward. Yeah. If you're used to traditional talk therapy, then when you go see someone that's going to do brain-based therapy, you get all kinds of responses from it. But it's a thing to kind of learn and let yourself trust the process. Like you said, I'm not sure what's really going on, but I know you can know your body's processing things for you. And I'll say just for those that may not be aware of the idea of the brain and the trauma and these brain-based therapies is that, you know, we've got our front part of our brain that we stay in that is our cognitive, how we make sense of things. So we're constantly staying in that part of the brain. And then we've got our fear center that's that fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. So that's where we jump to when we are triggered by something. But what's happened is 
that midbrain where when we experience trauma, our brain will put this little capsule around it and file it for us in an unconscious place. So with the brain-based therapies, what happens is you're able to gain access to that deeper filed trauma. Imagine if that midbrain where things are filed, it's like a filing room with filing cabinets and a bunch of files. So we may know I'm not good enough. That's the thing that keeps coming up and where we feel stuck. It may not be a certain event that we can tie it to, but we can say, okay, I know there's a file in that filing room with a label and I get enough on it. Basically me as a therapist using brain spotting as a tool, I can help you walk into that filing room and pick out the file that we want to work with, that we want to gain access to and learn more about. You get to get the file out and then you get to kind of just sit down and look in it. What all's in there? And I'm just standing there holding a flashlight for you and sitting with you as you feel and experience stuff. Friends and family, they have well-meaning intentions, but sometimes we may be feeling something could be negative about ourselves, and it may just be, it's going to be okay. Without realizing it, that can feel really invalidating. Yeah. Sometimes we just need to feel bad and that's okay. I'm not going to try to make you feel better. I'm going to sit in it with you. I'll say, can you handle that? Or can you stand that? Like, what do you need? You can get mad. You can feel like deep emotion stuff. And I'm just going to sit in it. There's something to having someone else. And that's part of that dual attunement. Having someone witness your process, witness you and be completely okay with what you're feeling. You can get mad at me and I'm just going to be in it with you. A lot of us have not gotten that experience where it's just okay Mm -hmm. to feel whatever, no matter how ugly it is, it's okay. And that's a big part, I think, of just the therapeutic relationship is that I don't immediately try to like ground someone when they say they're feeling anxious. I'm just going to look at them in the eyes and I'm going to start breathing and they'll start naturally just breathing with me. That's our bodies. That's that dual attunement. And they can feel whatever. And they can say whatever, they can say nothing at all, but there's a message there that I'm connected and I'm with them. And that is a huge part of the process too. But the way that I might make sense of their trauma and their experiences may not be how they need to make sense of it. To me, it's instead of a turning away from all the time, just to try to get through, we turn towards it. We understand what it means for us. And then we get to a place where we're okay, even though. That's such a powerful visual with the files and you holding the flashlight. It's so validating because you're not telling them what to feel, right? but you're just kind of shining a light on, okay, this is the part that needs attention. Yeah. Because you got to think as therapists, it's super important for us to know how our own stories and our own life stuff show up because we can get triggered. There's times where we have clients sitting across from us that have experienced the same thing that we did. This pandemic is really interesting because this is kind of the first time in a global capacity that we're experiencing things at the same time as our client. And so that's just another layer that gets added onto it. It's a safety issue for people. It is a loneliness thing, being disconnected. If we've experienced any of these things in our past, this pandemic has triggered it. Even if it is resolved, it's going to do something. We're seeing just like record numbers of people needing help because whatever was already there is getting triggered again. Um, Just like, you know, in Nashville, we just had this snow where it kind of put us to a halt for a week. I noticed 
with clients, it was a re-triggering of when the pandemic first started. And then the trauma that's underneath that, like a, you just see a re-triggering of a lot of stuff. So just goes to show the messaging of like, why can't I just be okay and get through this? There's just so many factors to take into to context when you're looking at kind of what's going to be right for that person's healing. It's so individualized that it's not a formula you can just like put people through and then say, all right, when you're done, you're good. And I love the thing you said about sitting with them in it, because yeah. the deep messaging that many of us get is that feeling these heavy emotions like grief and sadness and loneliness mm -hmm. is not okay. There's something wrong with you. Yeah. Even though it's not being said to us, that's the messaging that we receive is that, mm -hmm. well, I'm feeling all these things, so there must be something wrong with me. And a lot of people, I've heard this too, of like, well, if they weren't crying, if they weren't bawling and crying, that they weren't processing anything. I'm like, no, you're feeling stuff all the time, but I don't know what they're feeling. I didn't live their life with them. I'd tell clients all the time, I'm like, you are kind of the lead in this process. You're the expert in here, not me. Who knows more about you than you, right? Mm -hmm. So, and that's, I've just learned through doing some of these brain-based therapies and stuff, like how much me as a therapist can get in the way of my clients by me trying to make sense of their stuff. Because I can tell someone all day long, you're wonderful, you're beautiful, you have a right to all this stuff and it's going to sound good, but it's not really going to hit home until they know it for themselves. Mm -hmm. So I can introduce concepts to them, but then... Brain-based therapies is what's going to let their body yeah. know it and their brain know it as well. And then they can start to believe it. Mm -hmm. And that's when things really start kicking up and changing. <laughs> yes. So what are some misconceptions about trauma and healing from trauma? I would say the number one thing is that trauma is really only like the big things. But trauma is more about how a person perceived an event that happened rather than like the size of it and how big it is. So... Hearing parents fight every night, it may not cause a problem for one child, but then for another one who they've perceived it as being scared and not safe and feeling helpless, that's going to imprint on them different and they're going to hold it different. As an adult, it's interesting the amount of work I've done just around like these small phrases that have been said to clients that have stuck with them and really shaped how they think and view themselves just one comment about needing to be thinner. They recognize it as their own belief. People thinking they must have done something wrong to deserve it is another one. What's interesting about that is it's a way that the brain is trying to regain a sense of control in a powerless situation because it's easier for like a child to believe that somehow they caused something than just to not have any control or awareness. Another one I would say is time will heal my pain. Trauma very rarely heals on its own. We can shove it down enough that it may feel like it has gotten better. But until we really take a look at it and try to process and move through it, those fragmented things will stay in there in the brain and constantly feel like raw memories in different ways when we get triggered. And something that was interesting to me was PTSD. Mm -hmm. I'd always associated that with war veterans yeah. or people coming back mm -hmm. from war or experiencing mm -hmm. war. I learned because I started experiencing PTSD I was actually reading something the other day to think of PTSD as a disorder. It's just our natural response to experiences. I hate that it gets labeled a disorder. If I had to guess at why women experience it more, I would say the messaging. I'm not a man if I cry or have feelings and things like that. And so I think 
I'm generalizing here, but women tend to get a little bit more permission than men to actually pay attention. It's definitely, that's not the case for everybody. But I think sometimes that PTSD, hearing it as a disorder, when it's just such a natural way that we respond when we have experienced things. And just the permission that our society gives, just people in general, but then genders, You can look at so many different cultural aspects of this, of the different levels of permission to feel it or pay attention to it. This is so fascinating. I love it. Same here. (laughs) For those seeking healing, what resources would be a good starting point? First, I would say a therapist that's trauma-informed, that works from a brain-body perspective. There's some popular trauma go-tos for as far as like trauma therapists. So you're looking at like Stephen Porges, who did polyvagal theory. It's a theory on the nervous system and how our body processes. Peter Levine, he did somatic experiencing, but he is just all around like everything to do with trauma. His books are good. Dan Siegel, same thing, brain body expert in trauma. And then Bessel van der Kolk, who did Body Keeps the Score. It gets deep, that book's detailed in like how our body holds the trauma and, and different ways to kind of process it. Those kind of books are really helpful to help us start to be aware of how our trauma has affected us. Doing things like yoga, trauma-informed yoga. I think Pilates is really great because you really have to get centered into your core. For a lot, you know, trauma, we separate from our bodies a lot. We don't connect the two very much. We don't give it attention. This is really gets you connected into your body. And then meditation or mindfulness. It's going to bring in breath work and that somatic stuff. It's that whole process of what is your body experiencing? How am I feeling? And where is it feeling it? It just provides more access to the brain and the body when we're doing those types of therapies as well. Can you talk about the services you offer at Trauma Therapy of Nashville? Of course. So we have four therapists, including myself, that work in different types of modalities, but we kind of have a focus on women's issues, chronic pain and illness, trauma, of course, and relationships. So that can cover things from addiction, anxiety, childhood trauma, learning new coping skills, going through a divorce, any kind of abuse that we may have gone through, life transitions. We have a therapist that specializes in working with sports athletes, mental health. And so there's difference between sports performance and then sports mental health. It's really great, I think, especially now that you're seeing a lot of athletes that have just had their seasons taken away from them. We do a lot with autoimmune, chronic pain and illness. We do the animal-assisted psychotherapy. Everybody's trained in brain spotting. A few people do clinical hypnosis, which is just another way to access the brain. Mm -hmm. We've heard CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. We do EMDR. We have mindfulness meditation, trauma-informed yoga, those types of things. And I love the philosophy of treating it as a whole person, not just one specific symptom. Yes, absolutely. That's just a must have. You know, doctors will send clients our way when they can't figure it out. I don't have to necessarily know the reason, but I can help your body try to figure it out. Mm -hmm. I've kind of started viewing like chronic illness and chronic pain. There's things that our body does that tries to help us and heal. And sometimes those things can create other issues for us. I'm going to approach everything with curiosity. So someone that has these stomach issues, why is that going on? What's it, is it needing to do? How is it trying to help us? Can we teach it a different way? And I think a lot of times, a lot of the physical symptoms are a symptom of something deeper that's going on. Mm-hmm. It's just a physical manifestation of whatever's going on that hasn't been processed yet. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I've dealt with chronic migraines since I was 19. When you get stress, I used to work at a place and there was a guy that loved to scare. Like he'd come up behind you and stomp his foot and clap his hand and be like, ah, you know, and scare you. And Every time he would do that to me, I could literally feel my whole nervous system clamp down and I would get a migraine. If people want to learn more about what you do, where can they connect with you online? TraumatherapyNashville.com is my website where we you can see and read about all these things we've talked about today or get connected with a therapist. We're going to switch gears a little bit for my last two questions. Mm-hmm. I love asking these questions because I think it's so important to be kind to yourself, yes. not only to other people. And so my question is, what is your favorite compliment you've ever received? I'm still fascinated and surprised when clients say, I remembered what you said in session, outside of session. I'm like, oh, they actually listened to something I said. And that always feels just very honoring. I have had a client say, I didn't want to bring up or tell you because I didn't want to hear your answer. And so that's what let them know it was something they should talk about, you know, with me. (laughs) The style of therapy and just person that I am is just very straightforward, as authentic as I can be. and so. When I hear that, it's they have permission to do that and they're learning to think in those ways too, to be authentic with themselves. To me, that lights me up whenever they're learning more about themselves and healing. So that's always a real big positive for me. I think it must be cool to witness your clients just have those light bulb moments, Mm -hmm. the aha moments, when something clicks for them finally and they're like, oh my gosh, that's so freeing. Yes, I get goosebumps. I have some skills from trainings in school, but... It takes a lot of work to show up and do the type of work that we're doing. It's hard and to continually do it for a lengthy period of time to dig into your stuff. That just amazes me for clients. It's like they get the credit, not me. It's amazing. I've really become aware of really how resilient we as a human race can be. Also, going back to the messaging and the way we grow up, and it could be a generational thing, but a lot of us don't want to sit in our stuff Mm -hmm. because it's uncomfortable. Absolutely. We're not taught how to do that. And so when we're forced to do it because we have to process it in order to release it, (laughs) it's really uncomfortable. It can be really painful. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It is not easy. You know, being a trauma therapist, by the time clients get to me, they've like tried to stand it as long as they could. And then they're just kind of at the end of their rope and like, I got to do something. And so it's hard to see clients in that spot. But then when they start, like you said, having some of those moments and realizations around things that ah oh, can be different. That's like the moments that I live for. <laughs> I'm like, yes, you got it. You're getting it. Yeah. Keep going. I'm, I'm just the cheerleader in the room. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. So my last question is, what is a compliment you can give yourself? A compliment would be, I appreciate about myself. I'm always wanting to learn more. There's always more to learn because I could easily just get comfortable. But I, I love learning and my desire to continue to do that. So I can give myself that credit, I guess. I think that's so important too, because healing in itself, especially from trauma, but healing in general, it's always a process. Mm -hmm. I always tell clients, like, my goal is not to fix all your problems for you. It Mm -hmm. is that you get to a place where life feels manageable, but you know how to manage the stuff that's going to eventually inevitably come your way, that you can deal with that, that you learn those skills. And we get your nervous system and your brain in the best position possible to then start living a life fully. I really don't like to like discharge clients because I'm like, I'm always here. Reach back out. It may be six months. It could be a month or it could be years. 
there may be times where life's going to throw something at you and you need somebody to be in that with you. I'm here like that because the work is never really done. I think we just ebb and flow. Yes. And what I love too is that you're giving us tools so that the next time when a trigger comes up or a multiple triggers come up unexpectedly, then we have these tools to be able to make things more manageable instead of just have that flight freeze response. Yeah. I'm always like, be curious and connect to the body. Check in with your body and how are you experiencing it? Breath work is the most regulatory thing. You're getting into your nervous system when you breathe in and when you exhale. And when you can regulate that, it helps your body, your nervous system try to regulate as well. The most basic skill when you get anxious, take some deep breaths. It's just so amazing how something very, very simple and there's different breath patterns Mm -hmm. that you can do to calm the nervous system or to help you sleep better or to let go or all these different things. And Mm -hmm. it's so valuable. And all you're doing is breathing. Doing breath work with clients. I may be having them breathe out of their hands, breathing out of their eyes or their ears Mm -hmm. or their feet or their stomach or their core, even the pores on your skin. That's my favorite one. We forget our skin's an organ. All of those things experienced life with you. And so our breath work and combining it with like mindfulness and meditative work as well, that's why we're able to, it helps us tap into that system that's holding it and releasing it when we're doing that type of work. That's so amazing. And it must be really neat to witness it too. Oh yeah, absolutely. A lot of times doing some of this stuff is the first time people have ever really practiced it or engaged with it. And those that that connect with it, it really does some powerful things for them. And it is really neat to watch them discover these types of things and that it's something they had all along, they had access to, but for different reasons, didn't feel like they did. And so just kind of watching, watching anybody get to heal is going to be lovely for anybody to see. But when you get kind of in the trenches with them and start seeing them do life differently, it's just the most rewarding part of the work. It makes the more difficult stuff worth it. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for spending time to be on this podcast. This has been fun. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I learned so much. I love that we're both open to learning more because Mm -hmm. I think that's where we help ourselves as far as moving along in our healing journeys. Absolutely. I totally agree. I appreciate being on here. This is fun. So thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in. I would love to know what your favorite part of this episode was. Tag me at Finding Strength of Heart on Instagram or Facebook, or you can email me at FindingStrengthOfHeart at gmail.com. Until next time, take good care of you, and we'll chat soon.